Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 102, Revelation, Plants and Stones. And the following is a sermon that I preached October 4th of this past year while working through the Gospel of Matthew in our church's lectionary. The passage for the sermon is Matthew 21, 33 to 44, which is Jesus's parable of the tenants. And I've decided to insert this sermon here because of last week's By the Book episode, the conversation I had with Christopher Wright on his book on idolatry. I had actually just finished his book. I had received it in the mail, devoured it in a week's time, and it was fresh on my mind as I approached the preparation for the sermon that I preached in early October. And so many of the themes that I picked up from Chris's book, many of the passages, the ideas of things made with human hands as being code language in the Bible for idolatry, as I looked at Jesus's parable, I realized that what we don't know about idolatry from the Old Testament cripples us in our ability to understand the nature of his parable. And so in keeping with the podcast, as many of you know, if you are faithful listeners or have listened to several episodes, you know periodically I sprinkle sermons that I preach in our own church into the podcast. And I do that for several reasons. One of them is because I want to let you know as Christians that we can be exhorted with this truth and it can have a powerful impact in our lives, not just as teaching material or curious insights to ponder, but rather for us to get down and, and, and dirty in our own lives and wrestle through issues that might be idolatrous in our own hearts and lives. And then I also insert these occasionally, if I'm really honest with you all, because it gives me a break. Um, I try to produce podcasts week, um, every single week and material, but I am also a pastor. And so there are some weeks where my schedule does not allow me to produce as much information or I start to feel burned out. And so I feel uh, there are times when I can put a sermon in place that I think fits the themes that we've been discussing so that it's not too much of a rabbit trail and yet one that does in fact give me a break. And so um, I don't just use this for, for break purposes. I think you'll be encouraged by this sermon, but it does address many of the issues we've looked at already through the, the book of Daniel. We touch on the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis. We look at some of the Psalms, but Chris Wright's book really was um, taking root itself in my heart and soul during the study of Matthew 21, during the preparation of that sermon. And if I remember correctly, it was one of those that I just couldn't even write out exactly. I just knew I needed to get up and share what was on my heart with, with our people. And so that's what this sermon is. And so I offer it to you um, as, a, as an episode this week on the podcast. I offer to you the sermon, Plants and Stones. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who had planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Jesus, give us your presence this morning as we attempt to understand your words to us. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to grab it and get it ready because I would like us to look at several passages in the Bible, not least of which Matthew 21, which is the section I just read to you a moment ago. I don't know what first comes into your mind when you hear something like this. Jesus is obviously very direct. He's dealing with a group of religious leaders of his own people who believe themselves to know the scriptures well enough to believe they will recognize the Messiah when he comes, and yet, sadly and tragically, they don't. Now, for you and I, who may not know the scriptures as well as some of Jesus' people did in his day, I want to try to help you, because there are several metaphors working simultaneously through this passage that if you have a little bit of background about those metaphors before we look at this passage, it'll make a whole host of more sense. The first metaphor that I want you to focus in on is the fact that we're talking about a vineyard here. We're talking about plants. And that might strike you as a little bit odd unless you know something about the Old Testament, and that is that ever since the beginning, God has oftentimes likened people to plants. Let me just read for you one example. In Exodus chapter 15, immediately after Israel was redeemed by the Lord from Egypt, Exodus 15, 17 to 18 says this, you will bring them, your people in, and you will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The passage that Jessica read from Isaiah chapter 5 straight up calls Israel a vineyard. It's a vineyard of the Lord. This is also a plant. And vines, as you all know, grow grapes. They grow fruit. And the Lord intended to plant his people into his sanctuary. This was going to be an act that the Lord himself was going to do. In in Exodus 15, it says, The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode the sanctuary which your hands have established. And this is continually a theme that surfaces ever since Genesis chapter 2, and that is that the Lord took his hands and crafted Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground. Things that the Lord makes, things that the Lord crafts with his hands are things that will never end. They're permanent. They last forever. But there's a second metaphor being used in Matthew 21 besides people being likened to plants or being likened to vineyards and being planted by the Lord. And that's how the parable itself ends. It ends with Jesus referencing people back. Do you not know what the scriptures say? 
which remind you that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus does something strange. Paul does this all through the New Testament. He must have gotten it from Jesus. They love to mix metaphors. So you have this big vineyard, this big plant, the Lord plants it, something great's going to happen through it, and all of a sudden we're introduced to a stone. I loved stones when I was a kid. I got into so much trouble with stones. I loved going to creeks and going tubing with my friends, but the only reason I was ever in a tube in the creek in the first place was to coast down to the really shallow water and find the skipping stones at the bottom of the creek. I prided myself on how many times I could get a stone to skip down the street. And I loved it when I could get it to just almost look like a motorboat. It would never really hop. It would just kind of glide and then go right up the bank. But stones are for different purposes and different shapes. If you want to skip a stone, you need to find a flat rock. If you find a boulder that's perfectly round like a baseball, you wouldn't use that to skip across the water unless you have an incredibly powerful arm. Stones are significant, and what Jesus is talking about here is a cornerstone. This is a structure that is going, uh, the cornerstone was a perfectly shaped stone that was going to be placed at the corner of a building so that the length, the width, and the height would all be measured perfectly. It's reminiscent of the kind of place that the Lord says he's going to build for himself. We know this as Christians today, reading our Old Testaments, that this is a reference to the temple. But what's really interesting is that throughout the Old Testament, not only does the Lord speak of himself as doing things by his own hands, but the people themselves, those made in God's image, when they follow the Lord faithfully, are asked to embody the Lord in the way he lives. It's just that when sin enters the world, people decide that there are certain aspects of who God is that we want to embody that is not our, our, our place. And one of those is in crafting, not images like God once did of us, but crafting of images, which the Old Testament speaks of quite, quite plainly as idolatry. Crafting things ourselves that we make with our own hands are corrupt. They're broken. They can't save us. They can't satisfy us. And I want to go back to a section, if you have your Bible, flip back to Daniel chapter 2. Dan Daniel is a fascinating book that is way more needed for adults than it even is for kids. But sadly, we tend to just leave the discussion of Daniel in the conversation with kids. And we've got fantastic stories. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, Gen in Daniel chapter 3 being tossed into the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down and worship what? The image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But what many people don't know is why Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image in the first place. It's because he's given a dream. It disturbs him. He doesn't know what to do with this dream. And fortunately, there's somebody in Israel, or I'm sorry, in Babylon at the time, who can interpret dreams, and his name is Daniel. And I won't go into the entire length of this dream, but in short, Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision of a giant image the head of which, Daniel tells him, is made of gold. The chest and the torso are made of silver. The legs are made of bronze. And by the time you get to the feet, it's re reminiscent of clay and iron. It's a strange mixture. And what many biblical scholars believe is that this is a representation of successive kingdoms that are about to come from this world. Nebuchadnezzar likes the idea that the head of gold represents him, right? So he goes out in the very next chapter and he erects a statue. He erects an image that is the embodiment of the greatness of his kingdom and the greatness of his empire, and he wants the whole world to bow down and worship it. 
But before he builds it, Daniel tells him what his dream was and why it was so disturbing. Because the dream doesn't just say that this great statue is going to be built. What it says is, verse 34 of Daniel 2, Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream, and he says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So we've got a contrast here. We have a contrast between things that the Lord makes and things that people make. And we have an exact contrast right here. So for instance, in Isaiah, later, um, in Isaiah chapter 2, the Lord will say to his own people, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Or in Habakkuk, he says, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Contrast that with the Lord in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 8 tells us that the Lord has given man dominion over the works of your hands. So the role that human beings were supposed to have is to look at the things the Lord has made, look at the things the Lord has established, look at the things that the Lord has done, and to rule over them as God's, benef as, as God's um, regents, as his stewards. But the subtle temptation from the very beginning is that if we took a little bit of God-like status ourselves and made a little bit of a name for ourselves, and drew in some of the Lord's authority and the Lord's power in the things that the Lord has made, we could make something that would make us look good. And this is, in fact, what almost always happens to anything that initially began good in the Lord and then is taken over by people. And so I'm going to see if I can tie these two metaphors together and help us understand what in the world Jesus is talking about in his parable. Genesis chapter 2. Trees were created in the garden, and they served two purposes. They were to be pleasant to the sight and good for food. They were to be aesthetically beautiful and pleasing as a reflection of the beauty of the God who created them, and they were to provide, provide nourishment and care for things outside of themselves. They were to provide food. For who? Other trees? No, human beings. The flourishing of God's creation. So when God likens people to plants... We can assume the same two things are supposed to be true. Beautiful to the sight, good for food. Produce blessing and, and, and compassion for those outside of ourselves. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Israel was supposed to do. Being planted on a giant mountain of the Lord in the temple, we're supposed to be an external blessing to those outside the temple so that when those came to the temple, they would see the power of their God who chose to meet with people and they would fall down and worship him and want to join the people in there, in the worship there. But subtly, over time, Israel began to get tripped up. 
They began to see their elevated status in God's eyes as belief that they actually were superior to the nations. They were better than the nations. If the nations want to come into the temple worship, well, they need to be as cleaned and as spruced up as we are because clearly our righteous lives are the reason why God lets us be in the temple and to, to show the rest of the world what that's supposed to be like. And ever so subtly, the people themselves inverted the function of the temple and the worship of their God to elevate themselves. They turned the work of the Lord's hands into a work of their own making. If you go back to Matthew 21, I'm thankful for our lectionary readings that move us through a gospel, but sadly, we skipped a whole chunk of material at the beginning part of chapter 21 that would be really helpful for you and I to understand if we're going to make any sense of why on earth Jesus tells this really strange parable at the end of the chapter. So if you look in chapter 21, it starts with a triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, certainly not the kind of animal one would ride on if they were making a name for themselves. This is certainly not the idea. And yet the people recognize someone great is here. They only think he's a prophet at the moment, but they begin to praise him. They begin to rejoice. And people in the temple start calling out Hosanna. Well, this uh, annoys the Pharisees. They don't like this. So Jesus goes into the temple in verse 12. And he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus comes into the temple, the place that initially was supposed to be the abode that the Lord made with his own hands, but the people have turned his system into something they've made with their own hands and they've completely corrupted it. And so Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. What are you doing? And then the religious leaders get upset because people are crying out Hosanna to the son of David and it says that the religious leaders were indignant with the people and Jesus says, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. You know, whenever you read the section, have you never read or did you not know it was written? Um, Jesus is picking a fight with the religious leaders. Jesus is talking to people who claim to know the Bible better than anyone. When he asks them, have you never read? It would be like asking a neurosurgeon, have you never read like biology 101? Um, excuse me, I did that in ninth grade in high school. Like I have a PhD now, right. It would be an insult because clearly something about your expertise you are missing. That's what Jesus is doing here. And then in verse 18, you get to this really weird section. Jesus has left the city. He's coming back to Jerusalem. We're told he's hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Yeah, gosh, Jesus, that's really mean. Poor fig tree until we remember that people are like plants. They're supposed to be beautiful to the sight and good for food. What other purpose do trees serve? Right. And when you come to a plant 
that is incapable of providing nourishment to weary travelers, what good is it? It's not good at all. Jesus' people, embodied in both the temple and in this fig tree, are completely corrupt. Their view of the Lord is only there to serve them. And they're making access to the Lord hard for the people that actually need Him the most. And it continues in verse 23. Jesus comes in, of course, enters the temple. The priest, chief priests and elders come up and say, um, excuse me, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus never answers their question. Instead, he poses a question of his own. He says, I'll tell you what. If you can answer this question, I'll tell you where I get my authority. John's baptism, is it from heaven or from men? Uh, yeah, well, um... Jesus plays their own game and turns it back on their heads. You see, if people were really interested in authority, they would be interested in the Lord's authority. But the fact that the religious leaders rejected John's offer of repentance in the way of righteousness means that they already believed themselves to be righteous. And at that point, do not see repentance as necessarily applying to them. And so Jesus decides when they say, oh, we're going to ride the fence here. We're not, we don't really know. He's like, okay, fine. Then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority. Final little parable. Jesus has a parable of two sons. He says, what do you think? A man goes to his son and says, son, go work in my vineyard today. He answered, I won't. But afterward, he changed his mind and goes. And another goes to his other son and says the same. He answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The religious leaders say the first one. The one who said, no, I won't do it. But later word changed his mind and went. And here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus is saying there is a danger of getting so familiar with God and his ways that you begin to think that your ways and your thoughts are exactly the same as his. And therefore, no one is able to critique you for anything you do or anything you say because, goodness gracious, everything I think and everything I, I do is already in line with God and his ways. It is the nature of idolatry to make us begin to think that we can arrive at a place above critique. And so Jesus comes and he tells the parable, the one I just read a moment ago, and he refers to this place. He's referring to Israel, the vine. And he's referring to the prophets that are continually sent to Israel looking for the fruit that they're going to bear to be a blessing to the nations. And the passage Jessica read in Isaiah chapter 5 explicitly calls Israel his vine, his plant. This um, flourishing vine of the Lord's own doing that he has created in order to be a blessing to the nations. But if you go back to Isaiah chapter 4, I want to show you why it is that this vine is being judged as unfruitful. Isaiah chapter 3, rather, Here's what the Lord says. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. 
What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And in Isaiah 5, verse 5, the passage Jessica read, the Lord says, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. The people's idolatry, the work of their own hands, led them to elevate their wealthy among them such that the poor among them suffered. And the Lord tells them through Isaiah that they are devouring the poor by their actions. And the Lord says, because you have chosen this, I will remove my protection and my care from you and you will be devoured. This is the picture that Jesus is painting for his own people in Matthew 21. And I know it's really tempting when we read the Gospels to want to jump straight to the personal devotional application for you and for me. And we're going to get there, but we can't get there right away. Because if we jump over all this history, we don't understand that we now are supposed to be who? The people that will produce the fruits that the Lord has always been looking for. If you and I don't know the kind of lack of fruit that Israel failed to give the Lord, which resulted in their judgment, and we unknowingly begin walking in the same kind of broken non-fruit, what do we imagine might be, the, might, might be the end result? I don't want that to be the end result, which is why I'm preaching to you, and I want to remind you of something we did as a church several years ago. We talked about this, I think, um, Lisa shared, stood up and, and just reminded us of it, but that our church a year and a half ago when we were struggling with our budget, we were committed as a leadership to make sure we were still supporting organizations in our community who really want to reach out and care for the poor. Why? Because that is a value to the Lord. And you remember if you were in those discussions how uncomfortable it felt because we weren't sure we were going to have enough money to make the rest of our church budget work. We had real expenses in the real world that we had to pay for. But we believed it was important to make sure we are going to honor the poor because that's something that the Lord values. That is part of what it means to bear real fruit. And the most exciting thing about it all was we got to the end of the year and we were all scratching our heads. Well, maybe not those who crunch all the numbers, but those of us who don't crunch the numbers were scratching our heads because I love it when things like that don't work out on paper. In my mind, it didn't work out on paper. And that's to commend you and your faith as we were trying to move forward. But the reason why the Old Testament was written is so that we can take notice of the things they did and of the things they didn't do, of the way the Lord provided and of the, of the way the people didn't or did trust Him to provide. And, and Paul tells us this exact thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to this. This is amazing. Paul says to the Corinthians... These things happened to them, Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's what Paul's saying. Everything that happened to Old Testament Israel happened for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, but take heed 
Lest anyone thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. Here's what Paul's saying. Lest anybody think that we today are better and more equipped and above the silly, petty idolatry of Israel from the Old Testament, take heed lest you fall too. And I think it's a warning. I think it's a subtle rebuke because the stone cut out by no human hand is a stone that crashes into an image built by human hands. It, it crashes into kingdoms that are built by people, structures and systems that people have twisted a little bit too much of themselves into. And the only image in this world that will stand the test of time is Jesus, the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, the cornerstone of the temple, the corner of the structure the Lord is building, the people who are part of the Lord's building, the people who are part of the Lord's planting, the people who are rooted and connected to the Lamb, Jesus himself, the stone, that will crush every worldly kingdom and knock them to dust. And listen to the way Jesus ends his discussion. He says... The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is every person on the planet. And every person who willingly falls onto the stone, who comes to the stone and says, I see in you what we were always supposed to be, he will be broken and rebuilt and remade into something beautiful and whole. But when that stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. Everyone will face the stone. And that is not a horrific idea. That's a beautiful idea. That's a powerful image. But Jesus is the one from heaven, from God, who was not made by human hands, which is not corrupted by this world's way of being. And the church the citizens of the kingdom who form the church of Jesus are those people who we hope are bearing the fruit that the Lord wants from his kingdom. But it's only going to come as we continually, repeatedly, consistently draw our strength from the stone. John will say, Jesus is the vine. And as we're rooted into him, we bear fruit. Well, we knew Israel was the vine from Isaiah 5, right. And Jesus embodies who Israel was supposed to be and all who are connected to him embody that too. And so I think today for us, the caution is, as Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10, is to start to really ask ourselves the way we understand the structures the Lord is building, the kinds of people he's inviting us to become, where in our lives, where in our belief systems are we subtly or maybe um, deceptively buying into ways in which we can slowly start to craft these things with our own hands and begin to think that this is something we have made and begin to think that this is something we have built. When the truth comes, we want to be on the right end of the stone. Paul talks about building with gold, silver, you know, wood, hay, stubble. Some things in the end are going to be burned up. Other things in the end will last. Everything rooted to Jesus is what will last. 
Everything rooted in us will not. So Jesus' words for his own people is an explanation of why it is that several decades after Jesus died and was raised, their whole temple system was completely leveled to the ground. Their desires for all of their beautiful buildings and all of the stones that they had put there came crashing down because that was no longer a system that the Lord was in. Instead, he is choosing today to take up residence in the heart of the kinds of people who choose to fall on the stone, who choose to build our lives on the cornerstone himself. That's what our church is built on. That's what we hope to see expanded with the Lutheran church as we begin continue conversations with them. We want a church built on Jesus Christ. That is it. And wherever and if ever we see anything in either of our churches that is a little bit more of a man-made structure, things we've made with our own hands, we want to be really cautious about how much we fight over those things tooth and nail and how much more we want to see the flourishing of Jesus' kingdom for the blessing of our community, for the blessing of the world. That's the kind of fruit that will last. And spoiler, it's things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's not flashy. It's not spectacular. It's hard work. And it's internal, creating us and molding us into the kinds of people who know how to bridge the presence of God with a world that desperately needs him. It only happens when the fruit of the Spirit is actively at work and free to reign in the lives of the people who bear that fruit. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we need your presence with us and I will be the first to admit it is frightening to think about things in our lives, mindsets, systems, structures, buildings, material wealth, whatever, that might be more things we've built with our own hands than things that you've built. But we know you're not a tyrant. We know you are very gracious and very compassionate because your spirit is that way. And so I ask you today in a firm way, but in a gentle way to begin to look into our lives individually and our lives as a church and lead us to see things that we might need to, um, to shed. That you would show us what it really means to bear fruit for your name. That we would be your plants. That we would be your building. That we would be people who bear fruit that honors you. Thank you so much for our church. Thank you for these believers. Thank you for the family uh, nature that we have here. And I ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit in our hearts. Convict us, encourage us, exhort us, rebuke us, whatever, to make us more like your son. We love you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I hope you found that sermon to be an encouragement in your own heart and life. I know in simply re-listening to it myself in preparation for putting this episode together, I realized, wow, there are quite a few areas in my own life where I have made things um, with my own hands 
and begins to take precedence over many of the things that God's done. And so I just encourage you to take some time this week, if you're a journaler, to pull out a journal and just ask Jesus to help you see what some of those things are. Others of you might feel more comfortable talking to a friend or just going on a walk by yourself and asking Jesus to help you see what those things might be, or maybe others of you know what they are already. Um, but I do, I do want to know in this information age where we're always inundated with more things to think about, it is always good to take us to take a step back and to say, okay, Jesus, I've taken in a bunch of information now. What do you want me to do with it? And um, if I thought I could even encourage one of you to do that as a result of listening to this episode, it will be, it will be valuable, I know, in Jesus's eyes, and, and um, I would be greatly encouraged by that as well. So thank you so much for continuing to tune in. As always, you hear me say this a lot, but I would love for you to leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes on. Thank you so much for my monthly supporters. I really do appreciate that support. And if you follow a link at the bottom of the show notes on each of these episodes, there's a place you can go if you would like to support the podcast. Um, at 99 cents or 4.99 or 9.99 a month, whatever figure suits you. I've had several members also just say, "Hey, we love it. Here's a one-time gift, and do what you want with it." So that's always an encouragement as well. No pressure there. This is a free service for all of you. I'm happy to do it. Love the interaction I've been able to have with several of you online. You can find me on social media. Uh, my Facebook page is just Joshua Yoder. But you can also find me, the Unbinding the Bible podcast on Instagram. And as always, you feel free to email me any comments or questions you have at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I hope you all have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you next time.